Hello and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik, the movie Stardust, and a mystery fanfic by the name of Hood and Love. Welcome to episode 14, Once Upon a Something. I'm Alex, the Tamlin one. It's got everything. Premarital sex, being kidnapped by a fairy monarch, naked men, a crossroad at midnight. I'm Freya, and I am the Baba Yaga's daughter one. Bit obscure, but female friendships. It's a Cinderella variant where everybody who's evil gets eventually burned up by fire that comes out of the eyes of a skull. It's amazing. There's magical hairbrushes. There's the Baba Yaga house with the chicken legs. It's great. I'm Macy. I'm the Little Red Riding Hood one, because sign me up for creepy forests and getting my way with an axe. We are three redheaded fantasy authors. And today we're talking about fairy tales. But first, what are we reading, fellow serpents? I recently finished reading Revenant Gun, the third book in Yoon Ha Lee's series. And it was as about as much of a mindfuck as the first two. <laughs> it was very enjoyable. And now I am midway through Armistice, by Lara Elena Donnelly. It is the second book in the Amberlo dossier. And it is a very good combination of sort of showbiz and grubby spy work and really interesting world building and what you do uh, to survive in a fascist state. So very topical. Mm, great. I, meanwhile, had a dreadful cold. So I've been reading tons of short things because my attention span is about there. I finally read Seana Maguire's Every Heart a Doorway, which people have been telling me to read forever. I also read a graphic novel called The Prince and the Dressmaker, which is adorable. And Narva Wolf and Dominic Parisian's anthology, The Starlit Wood, which, you know, tons of queer fairy tales and all sorts of creepy shit, which is my jam these days. Nice. Uh, and I read Rag and Bone by K.J. Charles, which is a spin-off novel from the A Charm of Magpies series. And also, just today, I finally got around to watching Queer Eye on Netflix because everyone's been saying how great it is all year. And I was like, oh, that sounds great. I'll get around to watching that someday. That someday was today. And indeed, it is as good as everyone has said. You'll have to tell me when you get up to the episode, which, which is in Australia. I haven't watched any of it, but I there's one Australia in Australia. Episode. I think that's yeah, season apparently two. there is. Oh, in season cool. two. Okay. So today I have a question for my fellow experts in all things story-like. What is a fairy tale? I want to defer to Alex's fun time corners because she's very good at these kinds. Of things. Oh, <laughs> we have so many corners for Alex this this, this episode. <laughs> This episode is going to be Alex's Fun Facts Folklore and Mythology Corner, which is probably my most legit corner because I actually majored in this in college. I do have I do have a call later on for Alex's Fun Fact Fabric Craft Corner, which is also oh. legit. Oh, wonderful. Yes, this is going to be full of Alex's Fun Times Corners. So what is a fairy tale? So before I define it, actually, we want to make a quick disclaimer, and I think Macy was going to handle this one. Yes, so we are going to be talking largely from 
our own knowledge, which means this episode is going to be slanted a little bit towards Western fairy tales. That's kind of the traditions that we're all familiar with. But I do want to take a moment at the beginning to say these are definitely not the only kind of fairy tales. And many smarter people than me have spoken about the damage that this focus on European and Germanic fairy tales does to other people who aren't always as included. And I will put a link in the show notes for folks to read more about this. There's this wonderful interview with Shweta Thakwar and Over the Rainbow Fairy Tale, um, where she talks about some of this stuff. And I strongly recommend reading that and uh, looking at some of her work with the Katoho, um Fairy Tale and Mythology School. All right, Alex, your turn now. <laughs> so uh, when we sit down to think about what is fairy tales, the one of the first questions that pops up is, well, what's the difference between a fairy tale and a myth and a legend? And I'm pretty sure we talked about this in one of my college classes, <laughs> but I can't remember exactly what the difference was in like cerebral terms. So I'm kind of giving you this definition from my heart and my feelings rather than my facts. <laughs> and the sort of feelings definition that I have is that myths are stories that explain something about the world around us, like why the sun rises or why the moon waxes and wanes or where fire comes from. Uh, there's something that explain the natural world. Legends seem to be more about heroic figures. So for example, the trials of Hercules or what are some other examples? Arthurian legends. Arthurian legends, mm. exactly. Perfect. Robin Hood. Yeah, Robin Hood, exactly. Yes. Uh, Dudes and then... stabbing things. What? Dudes stabbing things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah mostly dude <laughs> stabbing things. Dudes who may or may not have lived at one point, or if they have lived, they've been fictionalized. And then fairy tales. I'll get to that in one second, but I do want to really quick mention the fact that some myths can be developed or evolved into fairy tales later. Uh, my favorite example of this is how the Greek myth of Orpheus was appropriated in the Middle Ages and made into a narrative poem in Middle English, uh, which was titled Sir o Orfeo. And in that one, Orfe Orpheus is now Orfeo and he's a king. Eurydice is sometimes called Lady Lysabel, and she's a queen. And instead of dying and going to Hades, she gets kidnapped by the, by the fairy queen. And then, of course, King Orfeo has to go and rescue her and negotiate with the king. And the difference is that with this narrative poem, it actually ends happily and she gets to go home. So and then this became a traditional Scottish song. And just as kind of a very quick uh, recommendation for everyone, I know Last episode we had, or two episodes ago for the epics, we gave them tons and tons and tons of really, really, really long wrecks. So I'm going to give you a fairy tale wreck, which is a song that's about six minutes long, and then you can move on with your life. <laughs> and the song is King Orfeo. It's a modern adaptation of the medieval myth, which came from the Greek myth. Or the medieval fairy tale, which came from the Greek myth. Uh, my two favorite versions are one by Ken Theriot and uh, number two by Emily Smith. Uh, but the question was, what makes a fairy tale? Are you enjoying Alex's monologue this week? <laughs> <laughs> I did want to mention to the fairy tales turning into stories. I think that uh, fairy tales turning into songs. I think that's something that we see a lot of, right? Because they came from an oral tradition and that lends yeah. itself very well to 
song crafting and my particular favorite is called Bonnie Swans by Lorena McKinnett mm. which is another amazing legend reformed into a song which our listeners can listen to very swiftly yes <laughs> and, myth, and myths becoming fairy tales myths and fairy tales have so many of those common elements things and Orpheus has a lot of those elements as well the idea of making a bargain that you can't break and if you break it there is punishment and transformation is a form of punishment and the idea of someone being transported into another realm from which they have to be rescued like all of these things show up again and again in myth but they also show up again and again in things we would think of more as fairy tale yeah so there are four main traits of a fairy tale as i see them um number one elements of the supernatural almost i would say every fairy tale has some kind of element of the supernatural whether that is literal fairies whether that is elves or hobgoblins uh, or witches, or spirits, or dragons. There's some kind of more than worldly thing going on. Uh, number two is that fairy tales tend to have a small scale and limited scope. While there may be princesses in these stories, their problems and obstacles are almost always personal rather than on a national scale or a global scale. I would say that sometimes a personal quest can be to solve a large scale problem. So yes, if you think of the... some fairy tales, people go off on quests to find particular ingredients or to do personal things, and maybe it will have implications for the kingdom. But the obstacles, the obstacles that they face are almost always personal obstacles, where they have to overcome some kind of personal weakness or temptation in order to achieve their goals. Rather than like armies clashing together is what I mean. Or mm -hmm. like political uh, intrigue. The third one is, I think the most essential one, that is that the purpose of fairy tales is to impart some kind of life lesson. It's not necessarily a moral like in Aesop's fables, but it can sometimes be that. For example, stories about making deals with dragons or devils or fairy kings warn us to be careful of making deals or contracts in real life. So all fairy, st fairy tales address a problem that was common and a very real concern for the person who would have heard the the fairy tale in when it was first invented in the middle ages when so many of our modern fairy tales were first being invented uh women were dying in childbirth right and left that was incredibly common and so having stepmothers was much more common mm -hmm. and that's one of the reasons why stepmothers are such a common archetype in our fairy tales well i'd say that also they encourage on one level if it's a moral level or a a life lesson level, they encourage community building because so many of them are about random acts of small kindness. And a random act of small kindness being then at the end of the story, or at least somewhere else in the story, being rewarded in a way that is out of proportion to the initial act. And I think part of that, it's almost semi-religious the way you think about it, you know, doing good now with no expectation of reward but with there being some grander, higher level reward coming later. But it's also about saying that this is what good people do. They do good for the weak and for the beggars, even when there's no expectation that they will ever be rewarded, but they're going to get a reward because that's the way the story works. Well, and you have to think about it as um, these are the lessons that a community chooses to tell its children. Right. Um, mm. they're, they're, that is where that is coming from. Yeah, it's, it's community building. It's community building, exactly. And... I was reading, like I said, The Starlit Wood, which is an anthology of reworked fairy tales. And there's this great introduction from the two editors that 
when describing what a fairy tale is, suggests that the reader think of a skeleton. And mammalian skeletons, for example, all have similar touchstones. Just by looking at a mammal skeleton, you would know it was a mammal, even if some parts were missing. And so it is with fairy tales. We know to expect certain themes and subjects, or variations on them. And so even if we don't necessarily recognise the source material, a story can still feel like a fairy tale when we recognize its skeleton. And speaking of skeletons, that brings us to the last point of the fairy tale, which is the story structure of fairy tales. Every fairy tale that I can think of operates on a perfect three-act structure, where in Act 1, you introduce the problem that the character is facing. In Act 2, they go through their road of trials, they face their obstacles, they overcome whatever is thrown in their path. And in Act 3, they use whatever gifts or powers or talents they have been awarded as reward for their trials to solve the problem that was happening in Act 1. Hmm. Mm. People usually come back home from their quests. It's right. very uncommon that you would have somebody, like for example, as they do in high fantasy, starting in a small town and then going to a larger scale. You always have, you leave your home because of able parents or you leave your home because of a problem and then you go away you have your adventures you come back and you burn your stepmother to death with a fiery-eyed skull or whatever it is that you do <laughs> yes fairy tales are palindromic yes yeah. so i have a little bit of a taxonomy for us because we all know how macy loves a taxonomy it's macy's fun facts taxonomy corner yeah sure let's call it that i need a corner or two as well this episode right yeah so the tentpoles that we were looking at this time around were really, I would say, modern interpretations or modern fairy tales or modern reworkings. They're not so much what I would think of as a traditional fairy tale. And we're going to be talking a bunch about that this episode, about reworkings and using the form of fairy tale to do other things that aren't necessarily fairy tales in themselves, but it's really clearly in conversation with that. So I have two taxonomies of kind of the modern fairy tale that we'll be talking about today. And one of them are the types of stories which take the structure of an existing recognizable fairy tale that you could discover just from reading the book or the, watching the movie, and they reimagine it or reuse it. They take Red Riding Hood or Rumpelstiltskin or Sleeping Beauty and they do something with it. That's type one. And then type two are the stories which take the tropes and trappings of fairy tales, be that the deep woods or the pattern of three things happening or the promises made and broken and they build something from the skeleton up that feels and sounds and tastes like a fairy tale but you couldn't point back and say oh this is the legend of the bonnie swans told again and my two examples for that are the difference between spinning silver by naomi novik as a rumpelstiltskin reimagining and Uprooted by Naomi Novik, which, to my knowledge, is an original story built upon the bones of fairy tale. Nice. So you mentioned Spinning Silver. Can we talk about that? We must talk about Spinning Silver. So how excited are we for this book? So excited. And by the time this episode comes out, it will finally be out in the world. Everyone should go buy it immediately. Go buy it. Go read it. Come back, because we are going to talk about all of it and spoil it to hell. Oh, yeah. And you do not want to read it spoiled, I think. On the other hand, I argue, since it is based on fairy tales, you can call a lot of the tropes and character arcs. Just if you are like genre savvy and you know fairy tales, you kind of know how the book goes. 
True, but I I was surprised in a lot of places. I knew kind of where the arc was going, but mm. I really enjoyed the surprises as to how she got to those twists and turns. Yeah. Well, I don't know yeah. that we'll manage to spoil it in that level of detail, but I will also say, in fact, when this episode goes out, Spinning Silver will have been out, I believe, for two weeks because we are giving you guys all a chance to read this as the teaser tentpole from the previous episode. So hopefully some of you have gone off and done that because um, then you can appreciate this episode all the more. But this yes. brings me to a brief tale of the shenanigans, because you will note that we are talking as if Spinning Silver was not yet out. This perhaps brings a question to your minds, dear <laughs> listeners. How have the serpents read this book? How Definitely have the through read shenanigans. This book? Shenanigans. So essentially, my agent is an angel and bribed me. She is me. pretty great. She is pretty great. We love yeah. her very much. She is the best. Uh, she bribed me for completing my edits with lending me her advanced reader copy of Spinning Silver. I read Hereafter it. Hereafter called an arc. <laughs> Hereafter called an arc because ain't nobody got time for that many syllables. Mm. And I read it and I made dolphin noises and forced Alex to read it. And then Alex and I went to the nebulas and staged a heist. It was such a heist. Tell them about the heist, It was Macy. such a heist. Uh, the nebulas is a fantasy and science fiction genre convention that's a pretty, pretty much a hotbed for uh, industry folks. And so they have a big table full of books. Free books. Free advanced reader copies of books that aren't yet published. <sighs> and so we staked out this table night and day until mm -hmm. we could find a spare copy to send to Australia, which is the one that Freya has read. Because I had been complaining on Twitter loudly about the fact that everybody else got arcs <laughs> and I didn't get an arc and wah, 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 wah. And then an arc came to me across the ocean. And we knew that we wanted to do this episode, so we had to get a, a, a copy to Freya somehow. We and did. so glad that we did. But now, let us cease this talk of shenanigui and heists. And book heists and talk about and talk about the book because the book. it's so good i think it is honestly one of my good. favorite reads this year it's such an impressive book and i like it a lot more than uprooted yeah I think. it I, just spoke to me much much more i think that spinning silver is a level up for naomi novik not that she needed it not that she no, needed it not that she needed it but it takes six point of view characters, first person point of view characters, and weaves them together in this seamless tapestry of multiple stories that somehow all build to climaxes that relate and emphasize the same themes and yet tell different stories. And it's honestly, it's a masterwork. And I'm so impressed. I'm looking forward to it winning all of the awards. And Alex is literally holding up a candle on her phone and waving it in the air right now. I can't tell yeah. if she's mocking me, but given that it's Alex, no, no, I'm being honest. absolutely sincere. When have you ever known me to be anything That's but why completely I sincere and earnest? Myself. Yeah, no, I'm literally everything that Macy is is saying. Please just picture me standing in the background, like like at a, a rock concert when they play a slow song, and just like <laughs> holding my phone in the air and swaying. Dear listeners, I do not have to picture this. I do not have to picture this as she is literally doing it right now. <laughs> I'm literally doing you, it on video. I'm now trying to picture Alex turning up to a live reading, standing at the back of the room. <laughs> she would. Let's not lie. Hashtag waving. things Alex would actually <laughs> do in Alex real life. Would actually do in real life. <laughs> 
But this book is, it began as a short story retelling the Rumpelstiltskin myth uh, from the point of view of a young Jewish moneylender. And she is still the main character of the novelization. And she is marvelous. But it brings in a whole bunch more characters. Um, it brings in a young Tsarina trying to survive a demon, which is super fairy tale. She was my favorite. She's the I best. I love the Tsarina. Oh, and it brings in an ice fairy king who I bet Alex loved. I did. I <laughs> super did. I absolutely did. Oh, anyway, it's an amazing book and it takes a very well-known fairy tale. And I want to say there's at least two or three other fairy tales woven through. Yeah. Yeah. So which ones did you pieces spot? Pieces of like Jack and the Beanstalk almost with like the burying of the, the tree and like the emphasis of the seeds. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that the Serena and the crown has to be something. Yeah, there was the thing about the demon, which seems familiar. And I want to say it's from a Russian fairy tale. There's, there's little bits of east of the sun, west of the moon when it comes oh. to the idea of having married someone that you can only see at night. That there's little bits of that sort of day night to do with bridegrooms that's east of the sun west of the moon oh yes and then i thought also there was quite a bit of hansel and gretel when it comes Mm. to the cabin and the brother and sister who find a cabin that seems to belong to something a little bit sinister but also is their shelter when they've run away and that's what i mean when i say it's it's taking this tapestry so it's hard to define it as either a type one or a type two but i would say it's more the type one this is a book that pulls very strongly from existing tales and does something yeah. more with them. I think it is based enough in Rumpelstiltskin that you can call it a type one in that particular taxonomy. Yeah, Rumpelstiltskin is definitely the core one, and I would agree that it's a type one. And I would say that one of the big themes of this book that is a theme throughout fairy tales and is kind of a bedrock of many fairy tales is a theme of value and debt and worth. Yes, because it's all these things to do it with how things are priced mm-hmm. and making fair exchange or not fair exchange and how that ties into the idea of money lending as a kind as a profession that was thought of as something that people do who you know, they're not respected or they are respected but they're feared and they're not liked. And it ties into this idea of you have your integrity comes from the fact that your word is good. Yes. And that you are always honest in your dealings. And the, and that is such a fairy tale thing. And it turns into all of the other stories. So the Tsarina makes a bargain with the demon. And there's so many bargains yes. throughout this story that feed into one another. And it, everything hinges on your word being your worth. Yes. And I love it so much because I love the way the power that the moneylender gains the magical power that she gains is predicated on her making a boast she makes a boastful claim where it can be overheard by the fairy king and he challenges her to prove that she can do the thing she's claimed to be able to do that she can spin silver into gold and she does it through mortal means three times progressively harder and after that she has that literal magical power And that is not something I think I've ever seen before, but it is gorgeous. It's gorgeous. And it's really well done. I love how then brackets later on in the book where once she said she can do something, she's almost trapped into having to do that thing. Like she makes a promise and he's almost angry because he doesn't think she can, but now she has to. But the thing is, and this is the fabulous transition of this character throughout the book, she becomes more and more a fairy 
as the book goes on, she becomes trapped by fairy logic, which wasn't applicable mm. to her as a mortal. But as she becomes more and more part of this world, she has to follow its rules as well. Yeah, it's almost about, it's that, I really found that part of it interesting to do with cultural assimilation. Yes. Where she's there and she's stuck and she's really anti, anti this culture. She's really annoyed <laughs> about having to be there, but she realizes that she, to survive, she has to start to sink into that culture and to learn its rules and to communicate with the people around her and to make friends. And the way, yes, the way that, that Naomi Novik has used this as a mirror and a reflection of the assimilation of Jews into yes. a Christian hegemony is, I mean, there was a page early on in which the main character very matter-of-factly tells you a few things about the legends in her family and what ha the way that her family has been treated and I had to go and sit down for a minute after reading that one page. I loved all of the things to do with the Jewish experience like obviously not Jewish myself and having not grown up in America I haven't grown up with a lot of stories or traditions to do with Jewish culture because it's much much less prominent here in Australia but it was you know you're reading books and you can see these hints of things and you know it's not for you it's not there written for, for me to recognize, but I loved the hints and the glimpses that I got of this very deep cultural experience and the way she wove that through the stories. Honestly, I, I went to a good friend of mine's wedding recently um, who is Orthodox Jewish and the scene towards the end of the book with the wedding where they're dancing and lifting the chairs above their heads and dancing separately, the men and the women and going in circles. I read that and I'm like, I can give a book to Dina that will have her wedding in it yeah and that i that's something I, special i have i've my my tiny friend aster is jewish and aster is 15 and adorable and i came back from the nebulas with this copy of spinning silver and i handed it to them immediately and i was like this is a book you need this have you ever seen yourself on the page like this before? You need this. And they read it and were absolutely over the moon with it because I don't think they had ever, you know, had something like that that was so much for them. And I was so glad that they did. And I think honestly, like sometimes we, we pick an episode and we build an episode around one thing in particular. And this episode, this is for Spinning Silver. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I loved the different types of families and the ways... I mean, Ovinomic is always very good at interesting, complicated family relationships, but I particularly liked the ones in this one. So the reliance on parents and parents relying on their children and feeling bad about it and reliance on siblings in the face of an evil, quotation marks, parent <laughs> and the ways in which I think especially fathers and daughters, fathers and daughters relate to one another and the way that fathers can use their daughters as bargaining chips and see their value as just monetary or using them as a pawn rather than seeing their inner value or else seeing their inner value as Miriam's parents do and then feeling bad about it because they wanted something different for her. And there's so much in there to do with the weight of generational expectation that works so well. But I think we should probably move on to the next story before we accidentally spend the whole episode <laughs> gushing about spinning Alex silver. has something to say. Real quick, Macy put a, a note here in the document. Alex's fun facts fabric craft corner. I have a very, very quick answer to your question here. Why do fair, so many fairy tales engage with fabric craft? 
because fairy tales are very much women's culture mm. and women mm. did fabric craft. Every single woman would know how to sew or know how to weave or know how to spin. And so it was a craft that was very accessible and familiar to them. Mm. And of course, they're going to put the accessible and familiar into the stories they tell. Mm. That is the extent extent of my answer. <laughs> well, you see it in myth and legend as well. Just wanted to say things like Penelope. And the um, cutting the threads for, of time. The cutting the threads of time. And it's, it's yeah. a creation myth. That the fate's weaving. Yeah. 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 So our second temple is Stardust. Brackets, the movie and not Yay, the book. Stardust. So the movie Stardust is a very much a fairy tale. By Macy's taxonomy, it would be type two. Mm. So it is a fairy tale, tropes and trappings, everything very recognizably fairy tale, but it is not based on the skeleton of an existing fairy tale, to the best of my knowledge. And the movie Stardust was an adaptation of the book by Neil Gaiman. Uh, but we are focusing on the movie because I think we have all seen the movie and love it to death. It is a fucking delight. It is so good. It's one of my cheer up, sick day kind of movies. It's so cute. It's one of those uh, movies where I have to consider the movie and the book two separate things. Mm. Because mm. if I consider the movie an adaptation of the book, I get kind of, you know, disappointed. They have very different tones. Yes, they did. Um, if I consider it as its own thing, it's adorable and wonderful. Mm. I love it a yep. lot. However... I would argue, I don't know that Stardust is actually a fairy tale. It uses a lot of fairy tale-y tropes, but, and it starts out very, very, very fairy tale-y, but it falls apart in act two and three. Well, so for listeners who haven't seen it, the whole premise of Stardust and the where it starts off is that it is about a boy who lives at a town in England that is connected to the fairy kingdom or a magical kingdom by a wall. And the town is called Wall. And there is a literal wall. And to get to the fairy kingdom you, or the magical kingdom, you just have to get over the wall. And the story begins when this boy is sent on a quest, essentially, by the, the girl who he is trying to woo when she sees a falling star and says, right, if you want to have me, you have to fetch me back that falling star. Essentially, it is the beginning of a quest narrative with the quintessential undeserving uh, person who he, he is in love with at the beginning of the story but will not be in love with by the end of the story and it's about his adventures on the other side of the wall and there's a whole lot of ridiculous characters and it does go a little bit large scale with all the things to do with the uh, the series of princes trying to kill each other to inherit the throne but the story of Tristan is very much a fairy tale to begin with. And I would say that we are talking about a broader definition of fairy tale here than the strict one that you might put in a myth. In that, I wouldn't say that spinning silver precisely fits the trope of a fairy tale. There's too much in it. I don't think you can ever have a novel that is purely a fairy tale. I think there's always other things get pulled in to, to make up the length. Like, fairy tales are quite concise. There's a lot of things that Stardust does that takes advantage of your knowledge of fairy yes. tales, though. It uses a lot of those tropes of, of transformation and magic and exchange. And it does really fun things with them. So, you know, you can spend your magic to turn someone into, turn a goat into a human, but the human is is still a goat on the inside, leading to one of the funniest scenes ever committed on the screen, in my opinion. He's my favorite. He's so good. I will say one thing. I wasn't, I wasn't super in love on rewatching this movie with some of the themes around women doing violence against women to preserve their beauty 
Mm, and yeah. fear of aging. Mm. That's a very fairy tale thing, though. If you think of things like Rapunzel, and especially how Rapunzel was redone with, with Tangled, mm. it's and the Wicked Queen in Snow White. I, I mean, yeah, of course, Snow we White. can say it's very problematic now, but it's an intensely fairy tale kind of theme. This fear of mortality in women being portrayed as fear of growing old and the use of cruelty and ownership and sucking dry more or less literally young women in order to preserve your own mortality and it's because that's the sphere in which women were allowed to kind of operate in those stories but i agree if you look at it from a modern lens you can see the problems with it yeah it, it's more i think that this this movie had a very clear contrast in the types of violence and power that women and men were allowed to wield yeah yeah that's true which was interesting to me. It was reminding me, this movie reminded me quite a bit of The Princess Bride. Oh, that's such a good film. It is. I'm trying to consider it like whether I can, I'm trying to think about whether I consider The Princess Bride to be a fairy tale. I think, no. No, it doesn't, doesn't quite. Because it doesn't have the structure. It doesn't have the right structure. Yeah. I, I'm just thinking of uh, within Stardust, I would almost call the romance of Princess Una and Tristan's father to be as much of a fairy tale as Tristan and the Star and Yvain. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, Because absolutely. you have the, the, the fair maiden held captive by a wicked witch transformed into a bird who must save her son's fiancé to be set free. <laughs> I loved how matter-of-fact that was, that he's just wandering through the market and she's like, oh, I'm really a princess who's been held captive by a witch. Come into this caravan, let's have sex. Like, like, <laughs> yeah, let's just sure. bang. This, this seems normal. <laughs> this seems normal. I will, give, I will give you this flower for a kiss. Yes, and then later on, you know, the fact that she's a bird that's also attached to this thing that turns into a bird and out of, into a woman, nobody really comments, and I quite like that, that it has a very fairy tale atmosphere, which means that all sorts of bullshit things can happen, and nobody's and nobody asks questions. on it, because it's yeah. just fun. Yeah, it's just part of, part of the story. Why not? Well, Let's go. transformation is a big part of fairy tales. Do we want to... Yeah scurry onwards yes let's scurry onwards so the next tentpole that we have to talk about macy do you know who wrote this tentpole i i don't really obscure author it's really obscure i don't know i've heard of them i don't know that i've ever heard of them i'm not sure if i've written it read anything by them before other than um extremely obscure they've ever including unpublished things but yes indeed yeah uh so <laughs> the, the final tentpole for this week is hood and glove by a fan fiction author Faye, otherwise known as freya otherwise known Hi, as guys. our darling darling third australian <laughs> serpent our darling podcast wife freya yeah. uh are you blushing yet, darling? She is. She's glowing. Look. <laughs> yes, yes, that's definitely blushing and not the sunlight streaming through the windows. <laughs> totally. I'm definitely a blushing maiden. Let's talk about how great Freya is. Let's. Freya is so great. Oh my God. Can I read the first line? Please I want to do. Read the first line. Can yes. I? Yes. The first line of this fic. The king of the fairies has fallen in love with a mortal. And the weather is completely fucked up. Ugh, yeah. She's so good. Freya <laughs> is just so good all of the time. And it like it should make me mad, but really it just makes me like claw my own face off and be like so <laughs> grateful that I get to like stand next to her sometimes. And Do you want to know like, how it happens, Alex? I can No, hold on, secret. let me finish talking. And I just get to like bask in her reflected glory. <laughs> it's very good. Now tell me how it happened, Freya. Oh, first I should tell people what 
what's the uh, we're talking about. What is it? Yeah, let's start. Hood there. and Glove. And it is in Yuri on Ice fandom. And it is about a very short uh, summary. Otobek is an errant knight and he set off on this this quest and to unfuck the weather. Yeah, unfuck the weather. And stuff happens. Freya, tell yeah. us how it happened. How it happened. So I wouldn't call him an errant knight. He is a professional hero. And he That's is, kind of what an errant knight job. is. <laughs> uh, except he's not really like defending anybody's honor, to be honest. He's really just in it for the money. There's no chivalry okay. in his version of knighthood. It's just something he does because he's good at going around. He's more like supernatural. He goes around and fights some monsters. People occasionally pay him for it. That's fair. But yes, he is on a mission to unfuck the weather. And in order to do that, he stumbles around and keeps running into a fairy and attempting to use all of his genre savvy to not get involved with this fairy, just get some information from them so that he can unfuck the weather. He has so much genre savvy and he it does. makes me really happy. That first scene, oh. so the fairy that he keeps running into is Yuri Plisetsky. And the first scene where he meets Yuri, Yuri is trying to, I think, trick him into like getting into this pool so Yuri can drown him. Yes. And, right? Yeah. And Otobek's like, nah. Like, I know how this story goes, and nah, I'm not getting involved. I'm not into this. I'm not into this. <sighs> it's very good. That was, I mean, that was a lot of fun to write, because I think if you're going to write a fairy tale that's a bit tongue-in-cheek, which this one, you can tell by the opening sentence, was very much a tongue-in-cheek fairy tale, then half the fun is allowing your characters to recognize the tropes through which they are walking. Yeah. Uh, and so they can avoid the most obvious ones, but they will still find themselves caught up in the more fun ones, like true love and sword fights and all of the things that I love most. And I think that one of the super cool things about doing this with fan fiction and with fairy tales is that fairy tales are such a skeletal structure, such a slim set of tropes by which you can recognize them, that you can pick up um, a character with as strong a personality as Otabek or Yuri Plisetsky and place them into that structure and be make them completely 100% themselves like, Otebek in this fic is 500% Otebek. Like, he is no one else. You could never mm -hmm. accuse him of being OCC. Yeah. At the same time, I totally buy him as a wandering, uh, materialistic hero for hire. It completely works for me, because in the structure of a fairy tale, you don't know anything about the knight errant, so you could make him however you want. And in fan fiction, that's slot and slide AUs, ready to use. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, and this one in particular, the the canon gave us the whole hero and the fairy yes. thing. They said this is a whole thing that they set up, and then and so obviously the the impetus for this pick was I started thinking about how that would actually work, <laughs> and then I realized that if Yuri Pesetsky had to be a fairy, then Victor had to be a fairy, yes. and there was only one type of fairy that Victor would be, Absolutely. and that was the entire story growing from there. Yes, the dilettante yes. ice king who's fucking up his kingdom just so that he can get with Yuri. Kasi. Yes, and that brings us to like a thing that I always have to talk about whenever it comes up in conversation, <laughs> and that is that is of course Alex's fun facts, Heroes corner. Heroes. It has been so long since we talked about the Heroes Gamos, Alex. It's I'm been so, so long since so provide <laughs> this for you. Has it been Thank so you. long? Has it been? It so has. When did I think it has been it? a few episodes at least. It's been several episodes. I think oh the last God. time we talked about it was actually in episode ten for the extravaganza. Oh my gosh! 
Yeah. So there's actually a really interesting kind of twisty version of the hero Scamos in this fic because there is a relationship between Victor the King and the land mm-hmm. and he sort of uses his relationship with the land in order to woo Yuri Katsuki. Well, I stole this wholesale from A Midsummer Night's Dream, just so you know. <laughs> oh, did you? I did not recognize that. Tell us yeah, more. Yeah, because the whole point of Midsummer Night's Dream is that Titania and Oberon are fighting over mm. the uh, the changeling boy who was the son of a member of Titania's court, and Oberon stole the changeling boy, and so they're, they're in the middle of a snit, and every, all of the natural world is going off because they're fighting. Like, the seasons are out of balance. That's literally like the that. Heroes Gamos. That's, like, pretty yeah, yeah. complete yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, Shakespeare stole it from the Heroes Gamos, but I stole yeah. this particular, like, fairy <laughs> king causes problems with natural world from, from him. That's just Headline. how fairy tales work. So, real quick, in case you haven't listened to our previous episode, the Heroes Gamos, uh, just to define it very quickly, the Heroes Gamos is the sacred marriage, and it says that the king's marriage and relationship with the queen is symbolic of the king's relationship to the kingdom and the land. And so if his marriage is happy, then the land prospers and flourishes and it, everything is great. And if their relationship falls to pieces because one of them cheats on the other, then the land also suffers as well. And I have a minor obsession developing in my writing about this idea between a person's relationship with the land and them drawing power from that mm. and how and that what that relationship does. Right. And so that was where the whole idea came from, where the king of the fairies can change only if the king is challenged mm-hmm. for the throne in a, mm-hmm. it's a kind of formal kind of challenge and that is how it has to be won you can't just abdicate you have to have somebody walk in and claim it and say my claim is better i am prepared to take on this responsibility and that's what yuri plasetsky does i think that this comes back to something we were going to talk about a bit later that i'll introduce a bit early because it fits Mm. which is um fairy tale logic and the power of poetry yeah like poetry and poeticness and is kind of the engine that powers a lot of the logic of fairy tales. Um, You can buy a protection with a kiss, or you can buy this other flower with the color of your hair. Um, Mm. You can't surrender, you can't give in, you can't surrender the land, but if you are defeated in a duel, then of course you can give your throne to someone else. Yeah, and also I wanted to play with the idea of threefold return, which again ties Mm -hmm. back to that idea of a small act of kindness is rewarded out of proportion. So all through this, Yuri is trying to trick Otabek into doing the, into um, basically coming under his control so that he can steal his strength. But it turns out that if you develop a good relationship with somebody and then you offer them your strength willingly, then whatever it is you offer willingly will be returned threefold. And like all of the plot twists in the third act fall on that. And there was, yeah. in fact, the quote that I pulled from your fic was um, this, it amuses Otebeck that it never occurred to Yuri to just ask, but that doesn't seem to be how the Fae do things. Nothing so straightforward. What they want, they win. And that's a very fairy tale thing, which I love. Yes, absolutely. It's all about trickery and winning and you, you deserve things that you can take. It's, and I like oh playing with that because it sort of turns into that... Odebeck proves that he deserves Yuri by holding on to him through the whole Tamlin transformation thing. Macy, you're making hand-on-face motions. It's the Kingdom of Knives! Oh, the Kingdom of Unsheathed Knives and Hungers. Yes, from episode one. We haven't talked about that. We haven't talked about the Empire of Unsheathed Knives and Hungers in ages. robot porn 
thing. <laughs> Roll please, phone. please tell me how you are linking robot porn to my story. <laughs> no, I will. I will. And Alex can tell you because Alex understands. Yeah, because like it's about you deserve what you can win. And if you don't win it, then you don't deserve it. Yes. And if someone yes. else can take it from you. Yeah, that's absolutely the, the Empire no, Bunchy. No, you're totally right. The whole thing of the fairy kingdom and all the fair folk, like the British legend of like the she and the unseely court, it's the empire of knives. That's fairy logic. You only have what you win and everything must be gained by trickery because everyone is out to get you too. So get them first. It's just that the knives that they wield are words. Right. Yeah. And promises and contracts. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Absolutely. isn't that lovely? It is a very English thing and it's very telling that you use the word empire because the English were all into taking whatever it was that they could grab. Oh, yeah. Knives. I mean, so weren't all of the <laughs> yeah. European nations, but yes, particularly the English. But mm -hmm. I, I think that it is. It's um, the it's the counteraction between the community building inside the village and the kingdom of knives out in the forest. Where if you mm -hmm. wondering... Oh my God, I love that. You're blowing my mind right now. Holy shit. <laughs> That's right? so good, Macy. Please keep talking. Right? No, because yeah. this is you are sat by the fire and you are spinning your cloth and you're telling your children be kind because otherwise you'll be like the wolves. Yes. And in spinning silver, that becomes very, very clear. You will be the bandits out in the woods. So one of the other terms in uh, fairy tale studies and mythology studies is chaos versus cosmos, hmm. where uh, cosmos, spelled with a K, stands for order and the rule of law and civilization and chaos is the wilderness and the dark forest and all the monsters in the forest and so it's this in in most fairy tales and and myths and legends there is a clash between the the chaos and the cosmos civilization and wilderness and i would posit that in spinning silver there is a kind of nested uh, balance of these worlds because within her home Miriam has the love and the kindness of her family but the way that they operate and the whole idea of money lending is seen as cold and otherworldly and not quite right in the same way that the people also see that the winter the winter fairies and the encroachment on the world of winter and things like that and so it's when Miriam actually goes to that other world that she can use her strengths because she has been operating under those kingdom of knife rules within the human world. And that's why people have not been liking her. But I would say also, um, this is mirrored again in Spinning Silver with the relationship between the princess and her maid in their one little room in the palace and the coldness of the rest of the palace to her. Mm -hmm. That's another example. But actually, the place that my mind was going when Alex was talking about the deep woods and cosmos and chaos was uprooted. And I adore Uprooted, um, and I adore it despite some of its pieces. Like, I'm not as fond of some of the interpersonal decisions that were made with the characters, because there, there were a few things with the heterosexual relationships in that book that I didn't adore. But the thing I do adore is the balance between the valley and the woods, the dark queen in the depths of the woods, the corrupt elf queen, and the way that the forest is attempting to eat the order of the village and the way that they're trying to hold that back, that is everything I love. And I did warn Alex that you might get Ernest Macy in this episode, and here she is, because I fucking <laughs> love fucky trees. You do love your I fucky trees. I do love my fucky trees. Let me tell you, my kingdom, my kingdom for Agnieszka and Wooden Kasia fic 
I have not read Uprooted, so I don't know what you're talking about, but if you link me to some fic, I will absolutely read it. There isn't a ton of it, but um, the thing about Uprooted is it gives you a chapter of these two girls, and the point of view character is telling you about her best friend, who is the most beautiful girl in the valley, and so skilled, and so kind, and how they run through the woods holding hand, and it's the happiest she's ever been in her life, and everything she values in the world is this other girl. Isn't it sad yeah. that the demon is going to choose her to take away? The demon chooses the main character instead. And then a hundred words into the book, the best friend who is beautiful and brave and good and true gets kidnapped into the woods by the evil chaos um, mutant creatures that have been corrupted by the dark woods power. And no one who is taken like this ever comes back ever it just doesn't happen but our hero loves her friend loves her so deeply that she goes into the dark woods and she does rescue her and she finds a way to save her burning out the magic in such a way that her friend has her mind back but her body is made of wood mm. and i love them and i want them to be married and they're not and this makes me sad well that's what fan fiction is for and this is how we get Sincere Ernest Macy. <laughs> if you give me lesbian, lesbian trees and trees at the same time. <laughs> lesbian trees. <laughs> That's the most on-brand Macy thing. I have simple needs, Alex. I have simple needs. And it's lesbian trees. It's not just... It's lesbians and trees. The trees don't have to be the lesbians. Like, they can just be proximate. Like, proximity is fine. <laughs> lesbians next to a tree. Yes, <laughs> proximity to trees. I mean, that is what your, your, your YA novel is about. Yes, my YA novel is about this. And, like, the... the it's about lesbians in proximity to magic trees. This is true. And, like, the story in Cast of Wonders, which Alex has informed me is not, in fact, a fairy tale, is about a baby girl who could be a lesbian. We let her choose. And a tree. I had canon that she's a baby lesbian. She's a baby lesbian. Of course she is. Mostly because I know you and I know what sort of things you write. <laughs> but okay, so I have just done like a five minute rant on why I love fairy tales. And that's a big piece of it is I love the wild and the things that are un aren't understood that we can't explain that are outside the mm -hmm. boundaries of the things that we consider home. And I love the touch of horror that I feel a good fairy tale has and with tales particularly like the bonnie swans where the girl is drowned for love and her bones are used as a harp that comes back and sings the betrayal to the king like that kind of poetry really is what speaks to me yeah i think my favorite thing is what you mentioned earlier with the focus on words and especially as readers and as writers the importance that is placed on words in fairy story fairy <laughs> in fairy tales is great because there's so much that's done with true names especially yes um and i did something with that in in hood and glove and it happens in spinning silver to amazing effect so knowing someone's name true shit. name being a source of power i love it i'm weak for that in any kind oh, of yeah. story context i think i literally think i just figured something out about one of my books <laughs> Like okay. live on air. I think you said a thing and I think I just figured it out. Okay, you have to tell us once we finish recording. Once we finish recording. Yeah, 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 yeah. But also there's things to do with contracts and verbal contracts and yes. finding loopholes because of specific wording, which is again a huge thing in spinning silver, but also in almost any kind of trickster fairy tale bargain that you can see. Actually, I know I'm thinking of 
I don't know, you probably you guys probably haven't actually read this. I did a very ridiculous crossover fic for Yuletide a couple of years ago, and it was a crossover between Zencho's Sorcerer's the Crown and a Victorian social novel called Miss Marchbanks, which is about a very prim and proper Victorian wife um, having to go and rescue her husband who has been kidnapped, and she does it by challenging the fairy queen to a duel of hospitality, because that is her strength. Anyway, and it's all to do with wording and specific wording and how you can get around loopholes by and challenges, but also the whole idea that fairies cannot lie yeah. and how they then deceive. So Holly Black's Cruel Prince, which I read recently, has that, the idea of fairies being unable to tell lies, and it shows how do you, how do you have court intrigue and how do you have deception and what is the value of a human who can lie as a spy in a court of fairies, which I love. I think if you love the name shit, then you will love Tithe. If I know you've read it ages ago, but it has a whole bunch of name shit and it's great fun. Yes. Alex, what's your favorite thing yes, about what's your fairy favorite tales? thing? Is it Heroes um, Gamos? No, I would say, I think more generally than that, like my favorite thing about fairy tales is very, very general and just that it's like because they're so familiar to us and so ingrained in our culture you know people like i think i've said before probably on this podcast but definitely in other contexts that people like songs that they know the chorus of mm. they like songs that they can sing along with and because fairy tales are so familiar to us even a new fairy tale is already kind of familiar because mm -hmm. it's leaning on a shared idea of mm. how the world works and it's leaning on shared tropes and I think that's really cool. I like fairy tales because of the community building aspect of it, but more specifically because of like the shared history that we get from them. And I must say, I like that because they are a shared history and because they are something that people can then call upon quite easily for storytelling, for AUs, to create a new story in their backbone, I really like the way that you you can then use those to smoosh a whole lot of things together. So fairy, so Spinning Silver did that, but I'm thinking in particular of the musical Into the Woods, yes. which is one of my favourite musicals of all time. Um, and obviously, you know, the genius of it is because Sondheim is a fucking miracle worker. But the fun of it is that it is recognisable stories woven together uh, into something new that then really subverts what you think of as, as fairy tales, especially in the second act. I think it's careful. It's important to point out, though, that that shared communication really is a cultural thing and we, we need to be mm. careful of who we leave out of the conversation when we assume that cultural touchstones are universal. I think that a lot of the ones that we're talking about are, but in part that's because they're from the, the dominant culture. Yes, I would, I would agree like 80% with you, yes. However, there are themes of fairy tales that are common across cultures. Mm -hmm. For example, almost every culture has some version of the Cinderella myth mm -hmm. or the Cinderella fairy tale rather, because the sort of lived experience of, oh no, your mother died, your father remarried. How do you deal with that? Right. How do you deal with a new mother? Mm -hmm. How do you deal with a new family is very much a real thing that people across cultures That's and specifically women across cultures have had to deal with. So you're right. And also, and as a side note for listeners who enjoy taxonomy, you should look up the Arne Thompson Tail Type Index and Motif mm. Index, which are attempts to classify folklore and fairy tale across a vast range of cultures, mostly Western and Eastern European, but you can use the classification for any culture. 
and it is a delight if you look up some of the things that are put on there. For example, in the motif index, this is what Wikipedia says, entry S51.1 is cruel mother-in-law plans death of daughter-in-law, <laughs> which is what we were saying with the Cinderella myth. And so you can actually use these motifs across cultures and sort them in the same way that you can a Dewey Decimal System, which to the organized Ravenclaw part of me is a wonderful thing. And I think that this is one of the things that I love about fairy tales is that they are a communication, they're a constant communication between each other. And I wonder, maybe it's part of the fact that they are primarily told as oral tales, as oral tradition, but are fairy tales always transformative works? How so? I don't know that you would have an author of a fairy tale. There are some fairy tales that are invented. There was, what was the one from the ballet that you were mentioning earlier, Freya? Swan Lake. Uh, Swan Lake. Yeah, Swan Lake, which was made up for that. But like a lot of fairy mm. tales are sewn together from scraps by a community over a long period of time and touched by every hand that passes them. Yeah. And I'm thinking about things like, I really deeply enjoyed the movie Maleficent, which takes a Disney reinterpretation of a very old fairy tale and tells a totally different message. And it turns a the Sleeping Beauty story, which in its original or at least Brothers Grimm form was about a beautiful woman immobilized and assaulted and forced to bear children and basically treated as an object and it moves the focus onto the villain and turns it into a story about overcoming trauma and overcoming rape and having your own decisions that you get to make and choosing eventually to build instead of destroy. I love Maleficent. I was really looking forward to all of the other remakes of the Disney movies because I thought they were going to do more interesting mm. Maleficent stuff and they just got a really straightforward sort of live action remake with the last yeah. few, which was really disappointing because I thought Maleficent was setting up something really interesting where instead of just remaking everything with real people, they were going to come at it from a different perspective and do a real transformative work, as yes. you were saying. So my question for you, I have a question for you too. Do you think Alice in Wonderland has a fairy tale atmosphere or not? And if so, why not? I would say... Why or why not? It kind of almost satirizes the fairy tale mm. atmosphere mm -hmm. um, because it takes the fairy tale atmosphere that we might expect and then twists it and kind of perverts it and makes it strange and unexpected I would and absurd. I think I agree with you, Alex, about Alice, but I think part of it for me is also that it just doesn't have an arc in the way mm. fairy tale nonsense should. There is a difference between nonsense for the sake of nonsense and themed poetic nonsense that's doing something. The princess yeah. who is spewing out frogs or jewels is doing so because she said something. It is a punishment that is direct. The nonsense is directly related to the reason for the nonsense. Mm -hmm. And, see, and I, so I would say that that's not nonsense then. Well, but that's what I'm saying is that in Alice in Wonderland, like on its on the face of it, the type of nonsense is fairy tale nonsense. Like uh, we don't have to call it nonsense then. We can call it something else. But Alice isn't because it doesn't have the logic of fairy tales. Yes, and that's what I, what I was. That's what that's what my view is. I wanted to see what you would say because, to me, the whole thing with Alice in Wonderland is that there is no logic to it. It has is not a fairy tale because it does not operate under logical rules. A fairy tale does it operates by some kind of internal logic, and you're absolutely right, Macy, that 
odd things can happen, quirky things can happen, things that seem very strange can happen, but there will always be a reason. And Alice does not have the structure, it does not have uh, a coherent arc, it just trips from nonsense to nonsense. And I was thinking about, um, you mentioned that you've read for the first time Every Heart a Doorway. Macy, Alex, have you read the Wayward Children novellas? No. Nope. So the Wayward Children novellas by Shauna McGuire, of which Every Heart a Doorway is the first one, um, are a discussion of portal fantasy, but they are also a discussion of how we classify magical worlds and other realms. And the worlds are arranged on two axes, and the axes are virtue to wicked and logic to nonsense. Mm. And for example, Alice and Wonderland are high nonsense world because there is no logical sequence of events. Things can happen that have no, you have no sense of why they've happened. And virtue and wicked are different things. But to me, a fairy tale operates more or less on the logic side of the world because you have to have that idea of give and take, of mm -hmm. value, of contracts made, of punishment for things that were done, of reward for things that were done. Otherwise, it doesn't have that fairy tale atmosphere. Right. Transgressions must be punished. Mm. Yeah. So I completely agree with everything you were saying. And the way that I would word it is to say that fairy tales have a theme of conflict between, again, cosmos versus chaos, whereas Alice in Wonderland, there's no conflict between cosmos and chaos, really. It's just this one cosmos character taking a tourism trip yes. through chaos. Yes. And then she returns to cosmos again. And there's no, like... Other than a little bit of culture clash, there's no like conflict or struggle between the two. Whereas fairy tale frequently is more of a clash between multiple different forms of cosmos who can't understand that they have logic in each other. Mm. And do you think there is a movie adaptation of Alice in Wonderland that has, I cannot remember the actress's name, but she was Mac in Veronica Mars. Anyway, she plays Alice and it actually turns it into a fairy tale structure because it starts off with Alice uh, in the real world in her home and her parents want her to sing a particular song and she doesn't want to sing the song at the party so she runs away and when she comes back to the real world at the end you actually see what happens when she gets back to the real world and she has learned lessons and she's learned a new song that she sings because she wants to be herself and all the people around her are the people in this tale and it has a fairy tale structure because she's learned things that she's then brought back to solve a problem but that does not happen in the book but you can tell why they wanted to put that in the movie because it's it's a movie ending. Like it's a satisfying, here is a three-act structure three kind structure. of ending. Exactly. Whereas Alice in Wonderland, the book, you can't turn it into a movie with a structure. No, it doesn't really have that. Mm. I just want to mention structure for a second because for the longest time, people would say, oh, story structure to me. And I would just sort of nod as if I knew what they were talking about while in my head I was going, what the fuck is story structure like people keep saying these words at me and really if you want to learn story structure all you have to do is read a lot of fairy tales and then yep. you'll just mm. sort of glean it naturally speaking of like fairy tales from a craft perspective besides the structure thing did either of you want to talk about how you craft a fairy tale atmosphere besides that i did a little bit because i have a piece that i've been working on for ages that is a science fiction fairy tale Ooh. And, you know, it has bionic eyes and bones of aluminium alloy. And those are fairy tale objects. They're recognizably fairy tale objects, but they are technological ones. Yeah. So I think that fairy tale has this focus on 
parts of the body and particularly as metaphors. Mm-hmm. Fairy tale has this focus on beauty and ugliness and this focus on poetry and metaphor. And I think it's actually by trying out unusual combinations, um, you know, a slipper made of glass may not have actually been from the original fairy tale, but it makes the whole thing feel that much more fairy tale. A dagger made of ice, you know, a splinter of ice embedded in your eye. Well, that's clearly impossible. So one way to build this atmosphere is to build objects that are logically impossible, Mm -hmm. but poetically so. Whereas I think that if you focus on logic, you can make something feel fairy tale, right? Through that use of words and contracts and the importance of wordings being specific. So I'm thinking I actually wrote a sci-fi fairy tale of Barbie Yaga's daughter, which is the fairy tale that I mentioned at the very beginning. And I wrote a sci-fi retelling of it, which is about a spaceship. Like the the main character in it is a, a sentient AI spaceship. And the focus on words and naming and things is because the spaceship can only operate within her programming language. And so she comes up and there's a lot of things to do with the true names of things because the Barbie Yaga character is a woman who is losing some of her cognitive function and she's learning, she's losing words. And she brings on a new person who she then has to hide from the Barbie Yaga character who has to learn the programming language. And it's all to do with how you define concepts and that intersection with AI. So I think that you could actually use AI to tell fairy tales quite well because you have that focus on things have to be strictly defined, which I quite like. I think that that is building a fairy tale that is more about the structure and tropes, but less about the atmosphere and the prose. I was trying to think, I wrote the beginning of it. Because I've seen the story that you mean. A fairy tale. The beginning of it has fairy tale prose, and then it sort of that just yeah, to set things it's more up, of a and then it, prose. then it becomes more straightforward after that. But I know, for example, that Alex, you use very much fairy tale embedded prose when you are writing myths in your chant universe. Yes, and one of the ways that I do that um, is, I mean, there's kind of a fairy tale language to it, which you just sort of pick up as you go along. But one of the most important sort of structural parts of a fairy of a fairy tale is the invocation uh which tells us when the story is taking place and i can't believe that we got through this whole episode with me almost missing out on the chance to mention strong time um, <laughs> which we also haven't got mentioned to jam for it several in the episodes last few minutes here huh? i just jam it right in just jam oh, it in yes. um, back to the like a robot again. boner there uh, we go. i'm so sorry <laughs> <Swift compatible laughs> just make Swift sure that you compatible. lubricate it before afterwards which i think that we have now <laughs> mentioned everything no we haven't because freya hasn't mentioned captive prince oh that's no true. and she's not going to so Good, no shots did. i did not you did so the so the invocation of a fairy tale is like the the opening and usually it's once upon a time and it in a galaxy far far away that's a fairy tale invocation but i we're not even getting into that star wars is not a fairy tale (laughs) absolutely not even though it uses we're not getting into it we're not getting into it we're not getting into it i have literally like two minutes we have offended our mythological studies person go back to strong time alex Going back to strong time, I have time to talk about Joseph Campbell in Star Wars later. Uh, so the invocation tells us that we are now in fairy tale space, mm-hmm. and we are now operating under fairy tale rules, and we know not to ask questions about things like women who turn into birds or the economy of a fairy tale kingdom where 
a woman can spin cloth into gold. Like, what is their economy based on? It doesn't matter because we don't need to ask that question. It's and an not invocation about sets up a very, very distant third-person narration. And the third-person narration is the, is the, the character of the fairy tale. You're yeah. being told it by, by fairy tale time itself. You're not, it's very much not a close third person where you're in one person's head. It isn't your story. You are merely the vessel. You are the channel. Mm, right. but, so you, but you are being the audience is being addressed directly by the story which is passing through the storyteller who is telling a tale that is truer than truth okay first of all fuck you and also <laughs> that seems like a good place to end freya do you have anything else to add i was going to read out the um invocation like the first sentence of the invocation from hans christian anderson's snow queen which literally begins listen exclamation mark that's we yeah, are beginning flat. our story yeah when we arrive at the end of it we shall it is to be hoped know more than we do now and how does one end a fairy tale and they all lived happily, happily ever, ever after, after. literary merit. It really is hard to turn around in the specfic genres without knocking into fairy tales and their adaptations, so we really hope you enjoyed our brief dive into these specific ones, and I'm sorry that I didn't even get a chance to shout about pastiches like fables or once upon a time. On next episode, two weeks hence on August 15th, we'll be bringing our inner 14 year olds out to play as we discuss horse books, or at least books featuring magical animal companions. If you'd like to prepare in advance, one of our tent poles is the movie How to Train Your Dragon. If, like me, you need an excuse to rewatch it for the 15th time. Or if you have a friend who's into stuff like that, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions? Comments? Breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com, at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr, or join in the conversation on our fan Discord chat linked in the show notes. If you enjoy the podcast, please remember to review us on iTunes. And by the way, that colour really brings out your eyes. <laughs>